Good morning to you. How you guys feeling? You doing all right? I, uh, I got up yesterday and you know, I, Katie was talking earlier about how it was cooler. And I put on a sweatshirt for the men's breakfast yesterday, which was great, by the way. If you miss the men's breakfast, don't miss the next one. We're doing those pretty regular. But I put on a sweatshirt thinking like, oh, yeah, it's the fall, so I'll have a sweatshirt. And I was immediately sweaty and had to take it off. It's not quite cold enough yet, but we're getting there. My name's Darren, and uh, <clears throat> I serve on the staff here as one of the shepherds and get the opportunity to teach God's Word as part of my responsibilities, which is fun. So we're in the midst of an ongoing study in 1 Corinthians, and that's why we just read the third chapter. So let's dive right in together. Uh, as we get to, to chapter 3, um, we've seen sort of this ongoing movement. Paul is building a case uh, against division in the church, and he started in chapter 1 by saying, I, I've heard these things rumored about you that you're sort of divided over your preferences. Some of you consider yourself followers of Paul and some Apollos and some Cephas and some are saying, well, we're actually followers of Christ, but what's this division? It doesn't have any place in the body, right? And he moves on to talk about the wisdom of God. And we heard that in our second week in the study, the wisdom of God, which is different than the wisdom of the world. From there, he progresses into a conversation about the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that guides us into truth. And the fact that that's unique, that we have something that the rest of the world doesn't have the opportunity to have the truth of who Christ is revealed to us by, whole, by, by the Holy Spirit. A- and the reality is that the centrality of Christ is what the Holy Spirit leads us to. The work of the Holy Spirit is always leading us to understand and to comprehend the centrality of Christ and him crucified. That's why at the beginning of chapter two, uh, Paul will say, when I was among you, I, I decided I wasn't really going to worry about representing anything other than Christ and him crucified, right? The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ is at the core of everything we do. And when we get off on these other peripheral things, we've missed it. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he continues into this by returning to that original argument. Here's what he says in the first four verses. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This is interesting. He says, I wanted to talk to you as if you were Christians, but I can't, right? He says, I want to talk to you like spiritual people. He's just said, the spirit of God leads spiritual people, but people of the flesh cannot be led by the spirit of God. Now he looks at the church at Corinth and said, I wanted to talk to you like you were Christians, like you were spiritual people, but I couldn't because you're still spiritual infants. Now that's an interesting thing for him to say. We get the idea of spiritual infancy. In, a, in fact, Jesus talks about spiritual infancy But Jesus talks about spiritual infancy when it comes to people who were wise in the ways of the world as opposed to people who were fools in the world. Uh, Matthew 11, 25, Jesus declares, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When Jesus talks about people who were little children, or he talks about people who were infants, he's actually commending them for their simple faith, right? Jesus is commending the simple faith of who others might consider to be worldly. But Paul is looking at people who consider themselves to be spiritual giants and he's saying, I can't even have a real conversation with you like people of faith because you aren't yet people of faith. You're, you're basically just babies. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.1, you're still infants. You're people of the flesh. And to justify this, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready for you're still of the flesh. 
For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Here's his argument. He's, he's not arguing to say, hey, I have some secret insider knowledge that I want to give you. Or there's like a Christianity 201 and a Christianity 301, Christianity 401. I want to be able to give you the advanced Christianity courses. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is we can't even have a discussion or a conversation about more difficult things or, or deeper things. We can't have a conversation about things that would actually be interesting to have a conversation about and discuss because you haven't even understood the foundation. You haven't got the centrality of Christ, which the Holy Spirit reveals. And until you get the centrality of Christ and him crucified, the resurrected Christ, we, we can't really talk about anything else. You guys are all bogged down in conversations about which teacher is best or which leader is best, Paul, Apollos, whatever. But we can't even discuss the merits of those teachers because you haven't grown to the place where you understand that Jesus is the only thing that matters. That's what he's saying. So don't be confused here in the first couple of verses. He's not saying, hey, I wanted to share with you some secret insider knowledge. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about insiders and outsiders. The milk of God's word or the milk of the gospel is the core. That's Jesus and him crucified. Now the implication of this is that once we understand that Jesus is at the center, once the Holy Spirit of God has revealed to us and confirmed in us that Christ crucified is at the center, once that's established, that does enable us to have healthy consideration and discussion of more peripheral issues. But we can't have a healthy discussion about more peripheral issues until Christ crucified is at the center of our life and practice. Does that, does that make sense? I was, uh, I was working with college students for a while at Hume Lake. I was the director of the Joshua Institute up there. And uh, occasionally I would have young men come into my office. I was working with kids who were between like 18 and 25. No offense to you if you're 24, you don't feel like a kid. That's fine. But at the time, anyway, I was working with young, younger people, right? So between 18 and 25, and they would come in. And, and some of these young men who were unmarried, they'd want to have a conversation about what it would take to find a spouse, right? And so they'd come in and they'd sit with me and they were like, I'm worried I'm never going to find a girlfriend. I'm worried I'm never going to get married. I'm worried I'm never going to find somebody to fall in love with. So like, can we talk about, you know, do women prefer going to movies? Do they rather go to restaurants? How do you, how do you, how do you introduce yourself to women? Are there pickup lines that can work and whatever? And many times when I'm talking to these college students, I'd have to say, we can't even talk about where to go on a date. We can't talk about what pickup lines to use. We can't talk about any of that until we talk about how to take a shower, right? (laughs) We got to talk about personal hygiene. You shouldn't work on any pickup lines until you learn how to use a toothbrush, right? Let's do toothbrush first, and then we can talk about pickup lines. Does that make sense? And it was weird because a lot of times these guys felt like, no, they really wanted to get in the weeds on the best strategy to try and woo a potential spouse. But if you don't get that fundamental thing right, if you don't learn how to to wash your hair, right, then the rest of it is worthless to speak about. Paul says there are other things we could talk about and other things we could discuss. The problem is that because you're divided over things that are peripheral, Things that don't matter because you're so focused in your own wisdom on whether Paul is better or Cephas is better or Apollos is better. And you've missed the core fundamental milk of the gospel, which is the centrality of Christ and him crucified. There's no point in having other conversations. There's no point in getting into the weeds on any of these other things we could otherwise discuss. Now, there's a great warning for us in this church, right? The warning for us is, are are there interesting things that can be discussed and argued about in the Bible? Yeah, thousands of them. 
There are thousands of things in the Bible that you and I could discuss. Thousands of things we could argue about and debate. Things that are peripheral issues. But if you allow those peripheral issues to become the sole focus of your faith and the sole focus of your followership of Christ without first being rooted in the centrality of Jesus and him crucified, all of the rest of that is worthless. You can have great answers about predestination and great answers about eschatology, great answers about how many days the earth was created in, great answers about women in ministry or whatever you want to argue about. But if Christ and him crucified is not at the center, all of your lofty arguments are a waste of time. He says, I wanted to talk to you like Christians and I couldn't even do that because you're just babies. I have to keep feeding you milk. What's that milk? Well, that that milk is not something that's ever going to go away, by the way, right? The centrality of Christ is not something he's ever going to stop feeding them. It will always be necessary. You don't move on from milk in this particular case to something else. But Christ as the center is core. He says, I wanted to talk to you about other things, but I couldn't because as long as you're arguing about these things that don't matter, it proves that you have not understood that Jesus is the only thing that matters, right? That everything else is just extra. It's just bonus, right? There are lots of things we can discuss and debate. Uh, Back, I don't know, it was probably three years ago. Um... The elders were going through a process where we were thinking about different titles, right? And whether we had needed to have different titles for men and women on our staff. So we read a lot of books. We listened to a lot of podcasts. We listened to a, We had a lot of discussion, a lot of prayer. And we were going through that. One of my favorite books, uh, we read a book called, uh, I think it was called Four Positions on Women in Ministry or something. And they had four different theologians who wrote their position on women in ministry. And then the other three theologians would argue why that person was wrong, right? So it's actually all in one volume. If you ever want to borrow it, I have an extra copy. You can take mine. It's a great book. But my favorite part of the book weren't necessarily the opinions of each one of those theologians in each one of the sections. The opinions were interesting and they were all well argued and well debated. But my favorite part of the whole book was the introduction to the book where those four theologians said, hey, you know what? We disagree on women in ministry, but we love Jesus and we love each other. And that's what brings us together. We have differences of opinion on what the scriptures say. And we have differences of opinion on how this should be worked out in the church. But we love Jesus and we love each other and we respect each other. And we can see where our peers are coming from. I love the mindset of that, right? I, love, I highlighted it in my copy. If you borrow my copy, you'll see my highlighting in there, right? I highlighted that because I think for many of us, we miss it. We divide over things that are peripheral. We divide over people's opinions. We divide over things that can be discussed and engaged with. And the only reason we divide is that we haven't really ingested the milk, the core, the fundamental, which is Jesus is the king of the universe and everything else is extra, right? Christ and him crucified. I decided not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified, he says. And I wanted to talk to you about other things, but as long as you're debating over whether Apollos or Paul is better, you're proving that you haven't even digested the truth of who Jesus is. Now he goes on to give us two examples. I I worked on some illustrations, but my illustrations are not as good as Paul's in this chapter. In this chapter, he gives us both an agricultural illustration and an architectural illustration, right? So let's look at those in turn. Uh, The agricultural illustration comes here in verses 5 through 9. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. There, And in those last two words of verse 9, he pivots to his next illustration. But the illustration agriculturally is of two field workers. And he says, you guys are debating over whether Apollos is greater or whether Paul is greater or Cephas is greater. But what you have to understand is, like, we don't matter. In fact, he goes so far in this chapter, in those verses, to say, Paul and Apollos are nothing. They're nothing. You know what that means? Me. Nothing. You, when it comes to the work of the gospel, nothing. Your favorite podcast pastor, your favorite author, the, the, the spiritual mentors you have in your life, the heroes of the faith that you look up to, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, each one of those people are nothing. God is everything. How often do we elevate human servants, right? Paul says they're just field workers. I planted, Apollos watered. Here's the interesting thing about the agricultural illustration that he's giving us. Those two people need each other, right? They do different things, but they cannot operate independent of one another. If you can water all day, in fact, you can be the best waterer ever in the field. And if nobody's planted, your watering's wasted, right? And you can be an incredible planter and you can plant more seeds than anybody else in the particular field where you're working. But if somebody else ain't watering, all of your your planting is a waste of time. So with this illustration, this agriculture, he's saying, yeah, Apollos and Paul and Cephas, all of us, these human servants of God, we've been assigned a task. We've been given a commission by God. We've got responsibilities we have to do, but each one is necessary and important. And in fact, none of it works without all of us. We, the individual servants, he says, are nothing. We are nothing. Paul and Apollos are not involved in this division, by the way, right? So there are people who are divided by their alignment or their allegiance to Paul or Apollos. It's important to note here that what Paul's saying is, I'm not involved in that, right? And I don't want you to use my name as a reason for division. They are servants who are interdependent and complementary. They're useless without each other. Servants, according to this text in verses 5 through 9, are equal. They're assigned tasks by the farm owner, right? They're given growth, and they are nothing compared with God who is everything. And they're rewarded by God, not their fellow workers. So the reward for the planter and the waterer do not come from the other field hands. The reward comes from God who owns the field and who gives the growth. You see how God is everything, and we are nothing. Now, that's not meant to give you sort of a like self-deprecating, woe is me, I'm nothing, I'm just a worm, I have no value, you know, whatever. I'm not doing that either. I'm not diminishing the importance of the waterer and the planter, right? All of us have a role in the body. He's created us uniquely to serve interdependently. But apart from God and in comparison with God, you and I are nothing. And without each other, we just do one thing. I've used the illustration before of the idea of a perfectly functioning, healthy human heart. A perfectly functioning, healthy human heart, right? You picture it in your head, right? It's inside someone's chest and it's making the whole body work. But you take that perfectly functioning, healthy human heart out of that context and you put it on a metal table and it's just gross, right? It can be healthy and functioning, but outside of the body, it does no good. It's useless out there. What's it do? It's doing nothing. It doesn't matter how healthy it is. It doesn't matter how good it could work inside the body. If it's removed from the body, it's just meat. 
Each and every one of us are created uniquely. That's not to diminish the fact that God wants to use us, that he lets us plant and he lets us water. But when it comes down to it, you and I are nothing. And the warning to us is that, number one, we don't elevate leaders. We don't elevate human servants because they're just field hands like us, right? We don't want to lift them up to a lofty position. We want to always be on guard against that. But there's also a warning to those of us who are serving, right? Maybe serving vocationally in a church like what I do, but all of us in one way or another are ministers of the gospel. There is a warning that if we're waiting for accolades or we're waiting for our own fame or we're waiting for our own power, that we're focused on the wrong things. Leaders must not further their own interests or expect acclaim or honor. It's not about them. Let me say that again. Leaders must not further their own interests or expect acclaim or honor. That's not why we serve God. We don't serve God for our own interests and for acclaim and honor. We do it for the glory of God and the good of other people. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus called to them and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses himself as an example and says, I didn't come to lord it over you that I created you all. I came here to serve you. We see Jesus wash his disciples' feet. And when he does that, he says to them, I've set you an example that you would do the same thing. It's also worth noting in this first illustration that Paul uses in verses 5 through 9, That a fight, and this is Paul's big point here, a fight between the planter and the waterer would be absurd, right? If they get into a fight over which one's more important or which one has more value, if they get into a fight and either one of them walks away from the job at hand, then the other person's job becomes useless as well. Does that make sense? There would never be a fight between the planter and the water. Why? Because they have a common goal. When we see fights among the body of Christ, when we see division and when we see dissension and when we see arguments, it's because we have lost the milk of the word of God, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified at the center. And as long as that is our common goal, it's absurd to fight because we can't accomplish that goal without one another. It takes the whole body. So when you see fighting and when you see division, do not be confused about the fact that there has been foundational drift and that all of a sudden something has become foundational that is not foundational to God or to the apostles. Does that make sense? When you see division and dissension, it's because we've gotten off of Christ. As long as we're focused on Christ and him crucified, then we will be aligned because we have a common goal. But it's when our goals shift that there becomes this sort of foundational drift. He moves on from an agricultural example to an architectural one. Look at verse 10. Well, actually the end of nine. He says, you're God's field. He says, God's building. And there's where he makes the pivot. I like the fact that he both, uh, I think Paul does a good job of this both here and in Ephesians, a couple of other places where he's he's not only thinking about his urban audience in the cities, but he's thinking about his rural audience. I I I like the breadth of that, right? That he frequently uses architectural and agricultural illustrations. Here in verse 10, this is what he says. He says, You're God's building according to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. There is a foundation, right? For no one, verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul talked about being a field hand, right? He says, I I plant, Apollos waters, but God's the one who gives the growth. He's the one who assigns the task. He's the one who distributes rewards, right? We're working together. You are God's field, he says to the church at Corinth, God's building. He says, I, like a master builder, laid a foundation. And there is no other foundation, he says, but the one that was laid, and that's Jesus Christ. This is an important one for us to hone in on for a second, right? Understand what Paul's saying here. Any organization, any organization that is based on something other than Jesus Christ is not a church, y'all. That's not a church. An organization that is based on political preference is not a church. It's a club or a, it's a party or whatever. I don't know, but it's not a church. Any organization that's based on social justice alone is not a church. It's a service organization. It might be a nonprofit organization, but it ain't a church. Any organization of people that is focused on the way things feel or is focused on fraternity, any organization that is focused on philosophical ideas, any organization that is focused on consumerism or individualism or uh, empiricism, right? Any of those things are a false foundation. And we don't have to look very far. You can almost throw a rock And hit organizations that are rooted in politics or rooted in social justice or rooted in feelings or rooted in preferences. And they might be great organizations filled with really lovely people, but they are not churches. Do you understand? A church has one foundation. And that foundation, according to the Apostle Paul, in the inspired word of God found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a church is centered on Christ and him crucified and nothing else. At least once a month, I get an email from somebody who says, why didn't you do this in our service? Or why didn't you recognize this? Or why didn't you acknowledge that? How come we didn't celebrate this? Or you didn't march this thing across the stage? Or you didn't endorse this particular issue? Can I tell you why? And I write this back in emails at least once a month. Because this is a church. It's not a club. It's not just an organization that's dedicated to serving the needs of the poor. Although it is that. It's not just an organization filled with people who have political uh, ideas, although it is that. This is an organization of God's people who were gathered around the centrality of Christ and him crucified. And we are here to worship and to reveal him in our day. That's what we're doing. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. He says, I laid a foundation and other people are building upon it, but there is only one foundation and it's Christ and him crucified. Which says to us that anything other than that, as a foundation, removes the church title. Removes the church title. That's, that's a biblical principle. It's right here. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So what he's saying here is there's all these field hands, right? Not to go back to the agricultural, but architecturally we're all 
doing the work of the ministry. We've talked before about the fact that we believe in the priesthood of the believer, but we also believe in the ministry of all believers, right? That God hasn't given me more ministry to do than he's given you to do, that he's created each one of us uniquely and we each have a circle. And so we're all building on the foundation that is Christ. But he says there's a warning for us because it is possible to build on that foundation with perishable materials. Does that make sense? Well, we should be warned, right? I think we should be cautious about building on the foundation, which is Christ. Good, good for you. If you're building on the foundation, which is Christ and him crucified, that's a great start. But if from there you are building on that foundation with perishable materials, he goes on to say, none of that will last. None of that will last. The, uh, the day of judgment will come. By the way, the fire that's talked about in this particular text is not talking about hell fire. It's talking about a purifying fire. It's a refining fire. That everyone's work on the foundation of Christ will be tested and there will be perishable things that will burn away and there will be imperishable things that will last. Well, how do we know the difference between the two? Well, one of the ways you know is that things that are based on the wisdom of men, which Paul has already talked about in chapter, at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2, anything that's based on the wisdom of men, which is folly to God, is perishable. That would include political affiliations. That would include philosophical ideas. That would include uh, d- different opinions and preferences. We don't build a church with preferences, right? We don't build a church with our best guesses. We build our church with things that will last. Well, what does Jesus say will last? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. What does Jesus say is most important? This will come as no surprise to some of you who've been around here for any length of time, but let's go back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 36 They come to Jesus and they say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, right? In this cooperative work, he says, we have to take care how we build. In fact, that's the title of my message today. Take care how you build. And this is a message for all of us. What are you building with? Are you building with your wisdom? Are you building upon the foundation of Christ with your opinions and your preferences? Or are you building upon the foundation of Christ with the things that Jesus said are most important? Jesus goes so far as to say that if you love God and you love others, the rest of the law takes care of itself. That everything else you see in the law is wrapped up in those two. So for me, when I'm trying to figure out what will last, what is perishable versus imperishable, if I'm trying to build as a, as a shepherd and a pastor, as a leader in a church, but more importantly, just as a Christian man who's trying to follow Jesus in my regular life, as a dad and a husband and all those things, how do I figure out what's perishable and imperishable? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to lean on what Jesus said was most important. I'm going to lean on loving God and loving others because I feel like I can trust that. I know there's lots of other opinions out there, right? I've read the books you've read. I've heard the podcast you've heard. You've sent me all the links to the pastors that you love and all of their particular opinions. I'm going to lean on what Jesus says is most fundamental, and that's a love for God and a love for others. How else do I know what's imperishable and perishable? Because I'm always going to be wrestling with my own wisdom, right? You get, I mean, you get that I have biases, right? You can't trust my biases. I'm just a field worker. I plant, somebody else waters, somebody else is out there with a rake and a hoe. Like, I'm just a human guy. There are for sure things you have heard me say from this stage and in personal conversation that are wrong. 
And it's mostly when I'm taking my best guess. Now, I do my best to tell you when I'm taking a guess, right? When I say to you, hey, there are a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions on this particular issue. Here's what I think. I'm always trying to wave a flag for you so you know when I'm guessing. But you should not build on the foundation of Christ with my guesses. Because I'm just a dude, just like you. I mean, some of you aren't dudes, but you know what I'm saying. Paul says, be careful how you build. I laid a foundation. There is no other foundation but Christ. Be careful how you build because fire will come. There will be a refine, there, there will be a day of refining. In an eschatological sense, in an end times kind of sense, there will be a day when what you have done will last or will not. You and I, all of us, have seen examples of churches that were one thing and are not that anymore. Some of them don't even exist anymore. Right? Because a day of trial came. Because a day of difficulty came. And those, some of those churches had been built on things that were perishable. And when their pastor turned out to be immoral, or when their pastor turned, you know, what, it's not always even about the pastor, right? But for a variety of reasons, we've all seen examples of churches that have crumbled and fallen. Why? Well, either they weren't based on the foundation, which is Christ, or they were built with perishable materials. Now, the good news is that even in the course of that refining, even in the course of that refining, which is the, the fire, as I said, is not punitive, but refining, even in the course of that, it gives us the opportunity to see what is perishable. And he says that even in the midst of that refining, the people will escape that refining, right? So the people who built with perishable materials aren't going to be separated from God forever by his grace and his goodness, right? So the idea here is that brilliant work on the foundation of Christ does not gain salvation and crummy work does not lose it. Crummy work does not lose it. Well, why is that? Well, because we're not saved by our work anyway, right? So if you're busy building on the foundation of Christ with things that are wood or hay or stubble and they're going to burn away, you're not going to lose Jesus because you didn't get Jesus because of what a great builder you were in the first place. You got Jesus because of how great Jesus is, right? So he says, you'll escape through that, but, but narrowly. Listen, part of what we want to walk away from this with, church, is not an estimation of other churches, right? It's easy to go, yeah, I, have, I do know of other churches that were built on perishable things. Hey, let, let's not do that for a second. I know I did that, but let's bring it back in. Let's talk about what we're doing here. Can we just be committed not to build with imperishable things, right? Can that, can that just be our goal? That we don't focus on stuff that doesn't matter, that's not built on Christ and him crucified? Let's be united in that, right? So that what we're doing here lasts, that what we're doing here lasts. He's essentially in this text talking about three threats or dangers to the church. The first is foundational drift, and we've already talked about that. When you build your organization on anything other than Christ and him crucified, you're not a church anymore. That foundational drift is a danger. It's a threat. The second threat or the second danger he talks about in this text is building with perishable materials. And in that case, you become an organization, a church that is rooted in Christ, but is wasting its time with things that are not essential, right? And the third warning in this text is a warning against sabotage. Sabotage. There's a warning against foundational drift. There's a warning against building with imperishable materials, or with perishable materials. And there's a warning against sabotage. Look at what he says in 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We've talked about this before. But the idea here, and this is an important biblical principle, is that while we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells each of us as individuals, we also understand and believe what the Bible teaches, and that is that the Holy Spirit indwells his church. 
that we are stones. Peter will say we are all stones in a spiritual house that is being built up as a residence for God. We are the temple. There's no longer a tabernacle. There's no longer a temple with a curtain and a holy of holies. We are the temple. By the way, verses 16 and 17 are entirely in the plural. There is nothing singular there. Those verses get taught singular sometimes. And they'll say, you, you yourself are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not what that's saying. That's saying we, we, right? Plural. The church at Corinth and the church in Fullerton is the temple of God. So what's he doing? Well, he's trying to help us understand why this is so important. I don't know, uh, some of you are from different eras than me, but when I was a kid, my brother and I, we like to build with... uh, we like to build with tinker toys and we like to build with Lincoln logs. And then eventually we built with Legos. I think most of the young people in the room will know Legos if they don't know the other two. But inevitably what would happen is I would build this really cool, you know, two or three story structure out of Lincoln logs. But, you know, in that can of Lincoln logs, there's only so many big ones and whatever. So I build this really cool cabin. And then I'd say to my little brother, Danny, who's five years younger than me, I'd say, don't touch that. I built it perfect. It's exactly what I want it to be. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it, right? He understood what I was saying, but you know, I mean, if you have a brother, you know. I'd come back and what? That, that cabin was demolished. You know why it was demolished? Because he wanted to build his own thing. And so he had to take some of this to build his own thing. He didn't have anything on his own without my stuff. Now what Paul is saying is you are the temple of God. This isn't a Lincoln log cabin. It's not a Lego spaceship, right? It's not a castle made out of tinker toys. The church is the residence of God's spirit. You are his temple. Don't mess with it. And there are very, very, very few as serious warnings in all of the Bible as we see in verse 17. In fact, I might say this feels like the harshest to me. Look at what it says in 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I I don't know that the warning could come in a more stern and kind of terrifying manner. To be honest with you, as I've studied it this week, theologians aren't even entirely sure what that means, that God will destroy those who destroy the church. But without knowing exactly what that destruction looks like, I think we should all be fairly warned. And I think we should all be fairly concerned for those we know, both locally and nationally and around the world, who are actively involved in creating division and dissension because God doesn't take that lightly. People will make all kinds of justifications for division. They will make all kinds of justification for their following of Apollos or their following of Paul. They will say, no, this is wise. This is the right thing to do. And Paul, right after this warning, is going to say, don't trust in your own wisdom. Don't trust in your own wisdom because this isn't a Lincoln Log cabin we're dealing with here. This isn't a tinker toy castle. This is God's temple. And if you are actively working to destroy God's temple, God will not look kindly upon that. I think we need to be prayerful for those that we know or those that we've heard about in other places who are actively involved in division and destruction of God's church because it's not a joke and we need to feel the weight of what that means. 
there's a stern warning for those who do damage to the church. Three threats, three, three potential dangers to the church. Foundational drift, perishable materials, and sabotage. And when sabotage comes, it comes because people have convinced themselves in their own wisdom that they need what the church offers to build their own thing. Just like Danny, my brother, needed to take those logs to build his own castle. There are those who in their own pride or in their own wisdom or in their own hunger for power or money or whatever else. We've seen all kinds of examples of this. They will, they will actively destroy or work to destroy God's temple, his church, in order to build their own thing. So he finishes this way. And this is the fourth section of 1 Corinthians 3. He says in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours. He's going to pivot into a kind of a closing thought, but let's think about what he's saying here. He's saying, don't trust your own understanding. You don't have it all figured out, right? Don't trust your own understanding. Church, if I could get one thing through our minds, don't trust your own understanding. You don't have it all figured out and neither do I. Anybody who's convinced themselves that they know how it all works is fooling themselves. We don't know how it all works, but based on Christ and him crucified, that foundation, praise God, we know it works. I don't know how it all works. I don't know how predestination and free will work together, right? I don't know. I'd give you my best guess, but I'm not going to take your time this morning. I don't have to know how that works. Praise God through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it works. He says, don't trust in your own, don't trust in your own wisdom. Don't deceive yourself. The people there in Corinth had been dividing the church and convincing themselves that those actions and that division was based on wisdom. Have you ever done that? Have you ever convinced yourself that the damage you were doing was actually justified? So have I. We all have, right? He says, don't do that. Trust the spirit of God who brings the wisdom of God. It's beautiful and honest to say I could be wrong or to admit that you're making your best guess. And we certainly have to recognize that in others. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What the writer in Proverbs is saying is that you actually find rest and refreshment in admitting you don't have it all figured out. Not trusting in your own wisdom. He says, don't deceive yourself. First Corinthians chapter three, don't deceive yourself, right? If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly. It's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Here he goes. This is his final and closing thought. And this is beautiful and vital. Don't miss it. He says, for all things are yours. All things are yours. He's talking to them. He's also talking to you and me. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things are yours. Let's think about this for just a second. When we, when we in our arrogance and in our own selfish wisdom divide from other people, what is it essentially that we're asserting? 
that we have knowledge or understanding, that we have some way of doing things that is better than somebody else. Paul says it isn't true. You're dividing over Apollos and Paul, but all of that is yours because in Christ, you have everything. What's he pointing at? He's pointing at the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not anything you lack. There is no teacher you lack. There is no system you lack. There is no style of music you lack. There is no carpet color you lack. There is no political system you lack. There is no, uh, there, there's nothing, right? He says, you have it all. In Christ, you have everything. And in those moments where you're tempted to divide, we divide based on either having something that someone else doesn't have or by judging the lack in someone else. Does that make sense? That's how we divide. He says, there's no division. Because Paul, Apollo, Cephas, whatever, you have everything because you have Christ. What is that? Well, that's the milk. That's the milk. That is the fundamental core truth of the Christian church throughout the ages that all we can be certain of is Christ and him crucified. That he is at the core. And if you have that, you have everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. What is there to fight about? You all have everything in Christ. When I have or know something unique, when I say I have or I know something unique, that's a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. Because if I'm saying I know something or I have something unique that the other followers of Jesus in this place don't have, what am I saying? That your followership of Christ is insufficient. And that isn't true. That isn't true. And when I say that I am lacking something, when I say, well, I, I don't know if I can be a part of this because I don't like the music or the preaching's too long or because uh, the parking spaces are this or whatever, and, and there's all kinds of silly ones, there's also big ones, right? We go, well, you know, I just, I just can't keep going to that church because the pastor won't endorse my political candidate. I can't keep going to that church because he doesn't take a stand on this or that or whatever else. What you're denying is the sufficiency of Christ. You're saying there is something you're lacking. And what Paul says is, all that stuff that you're using to divide you is a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. So turn loose of that because in Christ, you have it all. You have everything. There is nothing to be divided over. There's nothing to fight over. You have it all. And not only do you have it all, but your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ have it all also. So why don't we just lock arms? You plant, I'll water. Somebody else can push the rake or whatever. And we'll watch God give the growth. Paul doesn't want us to be divided and he's deadly serious. These warnings that he gives us, we should take to heart. We should be on guard for foundational drift. We should be on guard for building with perishable materials that will not last over time. And we should be on guard for sabotage because there are some who would want to take from a log cabin to build their own thing. But the log cabin, the church, is God's temple. And it should not be messed with. And for those who have actively worked to divide and do damage to the church, they should be very, very, very careful because the warning in this text is serious and stern. This morning, we're going to enter into a time of response. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up. And we do this every week, but I think sometimes maybe it gets a little lost. So let me just kind of reorient you to our response time. We don't want to be the kind of church that just listens to teaching. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. James talks about that. He says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers, right? That we would hear the word and that it would provoke us to action. Now, sometimes that action is a changing in philosophy or a changing in the way we think. Sometimes it's the laying down of things or the picking up of new things. But many times that response is just worship, right? We hear the voice of God and we stand in awe of him. 
Or sometimes that response to be doers of the word is to confess. There may be some of you in here who've recognized in your own life foundational drift or the building with perishable materials. And that might be the kind of thing you want to confess, that you want to repent of. Now, we, we don't confess to human beings, but we could certainly stand alongside one another in the midst of that process. So as God moves in us, the idea with response is we want, to, we want to physically respond. And that might be standing to your feet. It might be sitting where you're at. It might be writing something in your journal. It might be coming forward to pray. We've got staff and elders that are going to come and gather here in the front. And the reason they do that is just to be in solidarity with the body. Right? Nobody's a super Christian down front. In fact, there are no super Christians in this church. I think we've sufficiently covered that. But they're great people who love Jesus and they just want to pray with and for you. So if you feel the Spirit of God stirring you to respond in prayer then you're welcome to come forward. We've got our prayer room open. You're welcome to take advantage of that to the side. Stand and sing, sit and sing, sit in silence, pray, kneel, dance. I don't care. But this is an opportunity to not just receive the word of God, but to respond to it. That's why we call it a time of response. So I encourage you in the uniqueness of who God's made you to be, let's respond together.